So, Judges chapter 6. Let's pray. Let's pray. Let's get our minds focused in. Please be ready to take really good notes. Um, and, uh, yeah, I have, lots, I have a lot to share with you from God's Word today. So pray for me that I can be clear. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time. And, uh, God, I thank you for these people. I thank you for, uh, Lord, how they work together and the testimony that they have of unity and, uh, Lord, how we count on one another. And, I, and I'm so thankful for last night's message because I think all the things that maybe were causing any bit of disunity or, or just, just like fledgling uh, divisiveness, like things that are just beginning to sprout, I think a lot of us weeded some of that out last night and, and, we, and we prepared our hearts for more. And so, God, I just ask that you would teach us all submission, uh, that you would teach us all to love and prefer one another. Lord, teach us how to provoke one another to righteousness. Lord, that we would hold your word, but we would also just, that we would go in love. And, um, God, I, I ask that you would help us in this time with your word, because this passage is, uh, is powerful. Um, there's things that we need to learn from it. And, uh, and God, I pray that you teach it to me as I teach it, so that, that I could speak with wisdom and understanding. And Lord, that we would go back to Kansas City better prepared to serve you. Um, we're talking about revival, and Lord, I don't know anything about revival. Uh, um, I've seen revival in, in personal hearts, but I don't know if I've ever seen revival in a city. And, um, and that's what we're asking for, and so I don't know anything about it, really. Uh, I, I just trust you. I know that it's a faith thing, and, um, and Lord, I know that it's an end times thing. I know that there's something that you want to do in the world before you're done with it, and and so, God, I just, I'm trusting you, and I ask that we would learn a little bit about what it means to prepare ourselves for revival. Um, we're, just, we're just thankful that you've counted us worthy for this work, and we ask that you would honor your word and that it wouldn't come back void today. We ask it in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Um, over this weekend, uh, I have been asked a lot in our free time, a lot of questions, you know, during the invitation, things like that. I've been asked a lot of questions that deal with fear. And um, questions concerning fear and ministry, um, questions concerning leadership responsibility, and, and what to do with our fears, and even came up in yesterday morning's message, and I used Amanda as a great example of someone who is willing to overcome their fears for the sake of the mission. But this is something that, especially with young people, comes up a lot, just anxiety concerning what God's doing, anxiety concerning about, uh, concerning. Um, if you're qualified to do something. Uh, and, and we're going to talk about fear this morning. You know, um, you know some of you even have queer, uh, queers. Some of you have queers. Here we go. I'm, I am, pray for me. We've just gotten started. We're not, we're not addressing the issue of homosexuality this morning. That's not what we're doing. We're talking about fears. Let me get some, something to drink. Ah, Satan, don't railroad me now. Okay? So fears that, that deal with anxiety, fears that are just about basic obedience. Like, like there's some of you who've literally said, you, you, you know what the right thing is, but I'm afraid. Okay? And that statement just keeps coming up. Like, I know what's right, but you don't know how to obey because fear has gotten in the way. You know, not too long ago, I was asked by a leader in our ministry, um, what to do about anxiety before you preach, right? That's a common thing amongst like uh, pastors and, and preachers. And just, you know, any, anytime you're in front of people, there's an issue of anxiety, but so much more so 
for someone who's handled God's word for hours and wept over it, coming before a congregation of God's people, there's some anxiety that can come out in your flesh, some fears that can come out. And he, he asked me about what do you do about anxiety as you're going into the pulpit? You know, because a lot of times it takes like 10 minutes of anxiety before you start actually begin preaching. And, and your flesh wants to get in the way. And it was a really good question. I didn't really know how to answer. And I, and I, I, I kind of had to sit there for a second and think about it. And anecdotally, I, I told him, well, I think that you worship through fear. And I, and I knew that from experience because the times that I come into a message and I feel like, God, I don't really know what I'm going to say today. Will you help me? I'm, I'm just so afraid. The time that I spent praising the Lord cured me of my fears and gave me liberty in the pulpit. And I knew that from experience. And so I began to study it out. And I began to look at it in Scripture. And I had to, I had to, to see uh, from God's Word whether or not that was true. And I discovered that it, that it was. That it's true. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Last year, it was my, my first, last year at this retreat was my first experience really with Kaya. And one of the things that I noticed first and foremost was the liberty that you guys had in praise. Like it, it, it just shocked me um, because it was so different than what I had experienced before in ministry. And when I came to the retreat, I stood over here a lot. I remember being over here on this side of the room. And I remember, I remember seeing a lot of just abandonment, a lot of hands raised, a lot of people um, sitting down and contemplating and meditating on the Lord. And I saw a heart of worship. Praise, you know, praise when we sing is a reflection of a heart of worship. It's a, it's a, it's a symptom of worship, what's going on in your heart. You know, the thing about that was we got back to Kansas City and I saw that residually play out over a few weeks. But then after like a few weeks, oh, I realized that you were just like everyone else. Because the liberty that you had in praise began to subside. And really, the last year, I've watched you guys um, praise the Lord and worship Him on Sunday morning sporadically. It's been sporadic at best. And, and what I realize is what we have in these times, it doesn't necessarily translate. We don't necessarily take it home. We don't necessarily practice it daily. And, and really, that's the issue at hand, is, is practicing it daily. And, and so, man, it was a shock to me. It was one of the most stark contrasts that I saw in Kaya was this difference between that mountain experience and then what we took home. And really what I've begun to realize is that it's an issue of fear that's prohibited us and kept us from actually keeping that culture of true worship. And today we're going to look at how necessary worship is to the success in the Great Commission. How important and crucial it is and, and how... Um, I'm beginning to realize how true worship in Kaya is supposed to look. How learning to worship along with prayer and unity and the knowledge of God's word will cause us to thrive moving forward. And I think that if we can adopt a true, not philosophy of worship, but a true abandonment in worship, then what God's beginning to do in Kaya will only continue to thrive and grow. I really believe that. And so we're going to look at Judges chapter 6 as a platform for that conversation. We're going to start first in Judges chapter 5. Let me give you a little bit of a background, okay? In Judges chapter 5, what we see is a great victory, okay? We see, we see victory had in the nation of Israel. And, and God uses Barak and, uh, and Deborah to see a great victory wrought in the nation of Israel. And I want us to start in Judges chapter 5, verse 31, 
And what's happening here is we see this victory result in, in, in songs of praise. And we have a song that Deborah is lifting before the Lord. And what we're looking at in this chapter is actually her song. Her song to the Lord. A victory song. Uh, a victory over Canaan. And God's people prevailed in that moment. And praise and worship was a natural byproduct of faith manifest. Of revival in the nation. Praise just came as a natural result of victory had. And, you know, we talked about this not too long. I don't remember who was preaching about this, but we remember, remember the word Israel means God prevails. That's what that, the nation of Israel was set apart to be a nation that prevails in God's name. And this was so true in this moment. And we'll look at the very last verse of Judges chapter 5. five it says, So let all thine enemies perish, O Lord, but let them that love him as the sun when he goeth forth in his might, and the land had rest forty years. Man, thank you, Lord, for what you've done. But just like so often we see what happens is, is when there's comfort and there's peace and there's victory, Christians begin to rest on their laurels a little, a little bit. We begin to, to be satisfied in what God has done. And we're not looking forward to what God wants to do. And the result is sin begins to creep in. In the midst of our comfort, in the, in the midst of us being satisfied, sin begins to creep in and Satan begins to have his way with our hearts. And immediately following, quickly following, things begin to change for the believer. Worship and rejoicing is forgotten and soon the people who once prevailed find themselves offending the God responsible for their prosperity. When our worship for God, face, uh, when our worship for God faces... Uh, When we come into a place where we recognize God's victory, we are probably at the most susceptible point in our walk to fail. And so quickly, idolatry, just like what happens here, fear and idolatry begin to creep in. And before we even know it, Satan has his hooks in us. And this ministry will absolutely go from strength and victory and prevailing to failure. And I'm only saying this, and, and, and I, I pause there for a moment because the first thing that came to my mind was the ministry that I grew up in. I was thinking about the ministry, what it was like when I was with Sam Miles at KCBT. We were, we were like 150, 200 people strong and discipleship was being had. And Kenny remembers it. There was so much victory. And I look back now and I, and I look back upon what was and it's gone it's dust in the wind. It doesn't even exist. It's not even a memory. The people, the people that, that are there now where we once were, they don't even memorialize it. They're offended at the thought. And I'm telling you, it's been a decade. One decade. One generation passed. And all of that victory and all of that prevailing and all of that prosperity completely forgotten. We're going to talk about how that happens. Let's look at Judges chapter 6, verses 1. And the children of Israel, so they've, they've had the peace, they've had the prevailing, they've had the song of worship in their hearts. And verse 1, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And what we're going to talk about here is Israel's offense. In the case of Israel, their offense was absolutely twofold. It was absolutely twofold. The first thing that they had was fear. The second thing that they had 
was false idols. Let's look at verse 8. Jump down to verse 8. Okay, can you jump ahead in the chapter there? Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the hand of uh, the house of bondage and I deliver you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of, the, of all that oppressed you and drave them out from before you and gave you their land. Victory, 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 victory. Do you not remember who I am? Do you not remember all of the victories that I've wrought in your midst? Now listen. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. Be ye have not obeyed my voice. And so what is the failure here? What is the great offense before God? The great offense is fear and idolatry. Their fear of the Midianites, their fear of the Amorites, their fear of the people of the land in which they dwelt, their fear of them resulted in them conforming to their idolatry. Israel's fear of the Midianites led to fear of their gods. The Israelites were worshiping Baal. They had traded the uh, they, they had Israel had traded their god and their prevailing god for the god of the Midianites. And this is how this works, you know. So often what happens in our lives is that we see the enemy advancing and we, we play like we go camouflage. We like, we, like our, our best effort is just to blend in. You know, we fear the enemy. We fear his advances. We fear his influence in the lives of our family members. Think about the things that you fear right now. Contemplate those things. We fear what people think. We fear school. We fear people in our workplace. We fear not having friends. We fear cultures that are different than our own. We, we fear being vulnerable with one another. And we are riddled with these fears that give people and things authority over our lives, robbing our ability to acknowledge who God truly is. And this is what I want to say is that fear produces forgetfulness. Fear in our circumstances. Remember Peter? He was so quick to get out of the boat, wasn't he? But the instant that he was faced with the advances of the enemy, when the waves began to creep up, he was quick to forget that Jesus Christ was right there reaching out for him. Fear makes us forgetful of what God has done. So here's our key point. When we fear the world, we forget God's strength. And really, if I'm being honest, what's going to happen, what I'm thinking about in the back of my mind is we're going to go back home and you're going to once again be riddled with all of those things that seek to, to cause you to fear. And you're going to leave this experience and you're not going to take it home with you. But you're going to let the world influence you immediately when you get home. And you will lose your heart of worship because fear will have overcome you. And you will forget how strong God truly is. I mean, when we're worshiping and we're singing these praises, God is so powerful. But the instant we step away from that, what happens? What begins to happen? And, and really, the end result of that, our fear turns us to false idols. Christians' fear today is much the same as Israel's. You imitate what you fear in order to blend in. So what happens is we adopt the false idols of the wicked people around us and pretend that it's normal. We justify it. We justify the things that we obsess about. And you know, the, the, the easy example is like, is like when we get anxious, we all have some sort of crutch that we go to. You know, some sort of thing. We like try to, 
you know, we'll sit and we'll watch Netflix for like four hours just to stop thinking about the things that cause us anxiety. It's not a stereotype. It's absolutely true. We, try, we, we adopt the things of the wicked world around us and we allow those things to cause us to forget the things that we fear. We think worshiping the God of the Midianites is going to satisfy the fear that we have inside of us. If we just blend in, if we just try, and we use it and we justify it. We, we have so many excuses for looking like the lost world. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you're not set apart, you have no authority. What authority do you have if you just blend in? What authority can, can you claim if you look just like the lost people around you and you use their same coping mechanisms and you worship their same gods? We have got to rid ourselves of the idolatry in our lives and we have this conversation all the time and yet, and yet, we talk about our idols as though just simply acknowledging what those idols are in a message is going to be enough. Oh yeah, I do have a problem with watching too much Netflix or I do have a problem. You know, like some of us are very studious. Some of us turn to books. So you're so much smarter and you're so much holier than those people that turn to Netflix but you turn to some sort of fantasy novel. Right? You turn, you turn, what is it that you turn to? Tell me, you turn, it to, you turn to sports. Fantasy sports. It's funny that all these things have the word fantasy because it is just a fantasy, right? It's just, just a fantasy. It's, it's, a, it's a fleeting, momentary thing. It's a crutch for our anxiety and our fears. It's a distraction from the fact that we've got a battle and the enemy is daily advancing and taking the territory that belongs to us. UMKC belongs to us. UMKC belongs to us. Pin Valley belongs to us. That's the land of lentils. That's the, that's the place that we're called to defend. Midtown Kansas City, Raytown, Waldo, where is it that you minister? Where is your Bible study? That plot of land belongs to you and, the, and your Father in heaven. And we want to glorify his name, yet we want to blend in with the culture that is around us. No, 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 no. Our authority comes with being set apart. Now here's the deal. We start to blend in. And God is going to be quick to chastise us. Hebrews 12.5 And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth, scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. So listen to me. He's not going to let you get away with that. Man, and he's so, faith, he's so faithful to intervene and draw you back to him, even if it takes a, whoop, a whooping. So key point to, number two is God will chastise us for our fears and our, our idolatry. He's going to chastise you for your fear. He's going to awaken you to the fact Verse 2 of chapter 6 says, And the hand of, the, of Midian prevailed against Israel. And because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them dens, which are in the mountains and caves. First and foremost, um, Jisoo. There you go. Her face. She goes, 
So you find yourself in fear, you find yourself in, in, in worship of false idols, and first and foremost, what you're going to recognize is that you're actually oppressed. You're an, you're an oppressed people, just like Midian over, uh, over Israel. Today, Christians are oppressed by a system set up by Satan. James chapter 4, verse 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. 1 John 3.13, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. The system hates you. It's set up to oppress you. It's set up to cause fear. It's set up to draw you into false worship. And you have to recognize that, and your eyes have to be open to that fact. Because if it's not, your, your worship will absolutely be robbed from you. 1 John 5.9, and we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. So first and foremost, the world and its system seeks to oppress you. Second of all, the people of Israel were out of food. Verses 3 and 4, And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up, and the Amalekites and the children of the east, when they came up against them, and they encamped against them, and destroyed the increase of the earth, till thou come unto Gaza, and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor ass. Because of our false worships, false worship, we have become fruitless. We've become fruitless. Now, I'm talking about fruitlessness in two ways. Two ways. One of which is that when we go to God's word, we won't be fed by it. We won't be fed by it. When we seek God's face, he won't be there for us because we're too busy worshiping false idols. And the other thing is, we're going to try to do work for God and it's going to come up fruitless. We're going to come up fruitless. We're not going to bear the fruit that God has called us to have because there's going to be things in our life that prohibit him from using us. And these fields of the Israelites were void of food. They had nothing to feed themselves with. And because they had nothing to feed themselves with, they had nothing to feed the people. There was no sustenance in Israel. And that is the result of fear and false idols. They were overwhelmed. Verse 5, For they came up with their cattle and their tents, and they came, up, came as grasshoppers for multitude. This is speaking of the Midianites. For both they and their camels were, were without number, and they entered into the land to destroy it. The enemy will overwhelm you and overtake you. Believer, fear and idolatry will rob you of worship, and Satan will own you. And here's the deal. If we don't make worship right, if we don't put it at the forefront of what we're doing, if we don't take worshiping God seriously and glorifying His name, He will absolutely let us fall into a place of oppression and fruitlessness and we will become a monument and then we'll become a memory and then as many, many ministries, that mem memory will fade. You ever walked through a really old cemetery? There are markers that people haven't looked at in centuries. And I don't want Kaya to become that. And the answer when these problems come into your life, there's only one answer. There's only one solution. Israel here only, only could do one thing. They had forgotten how to worship. They couldn't just simply turn back towards worship. They only had one option. Verse 6. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried unto God. 
This was a unified proclamation. This, this wasn't worship, mind you, because they'd forgotten how. No, their cry was a response to their chastening. You know, crying is the most, most human thing that one can do. Did you know that? And I'm not just saying that because I do it all the time. It isn't. <laughs> I, I blubber like a baby because there's something inside of me that's broken, okay? And I, and I don't know how to explain that to you. But, but I want to say this. I, I value crying because it's taught me something. It's taught me that I'm weak. Your crying is the most human thing that one can do. It, it is, it's the thing that people do when they're at their very lowest moments, as well as the most joyous moments of, of life. When things are at their most rich, one cries. And God acknowledges crying. Crying is throughout the entirety of Scripture. We don't even have time to begin to look at all the times that men and women of God have cried unto the Lord and He responded And in this moment, the nation was broken with nowhere to look but up. And the voice of the people was a plea for help. And here we are, key point three. When his people cry out to him, we stir his mercy. And some of you have cried this weekend. You've cried because you're in a place where you know that you're wrapped up in fear. You're wrapped up in in your anxieties. You're wrapped up in what is going to become. You can't foresee what's going to happen a week from now. You don't know where you're going. You're afraid of, of how God's growing you. You're trepidatious. You're stepping back. There's things that are getting in the way. And you've acknowledged those things and you've cried out to the Lord for help. And I'm promising you this, is that He's there to meet you. He's ready with mercy. When His people cry out to Him, we stir His mercy. And here's the key question for you. What fears have ruled over you? What false idols have stolen God's worship? Midtown Baptist Temple's concern is with the Great Commission, is it not? Isn't that the thing that we talk about all the time? Man, if you've grown up in any other church, in any other Baptist church or any other denomination, and you came to Midtown Baptist Temple, I bet one of the things that was the most contrasting to you was this conversation about the Great Commission. Because other people really aren't talking about it. Not very many churches in this world are putting that conversation at the front. This idea of delivering the gospel to the whole world. But here's the, here's, the, here's the question that I want to pose to you. And if you need to write this down, you can. I'll say it twice. Where on earth dare we carry the lamp of the gospel without the trumpet of worship? Where do you dare take the lamp of the gospel without the trumpet of worship? See, God is concerned with worship. And his primary objective is to give us a heart for worship. That the trumpet of his name might sound all the greater in this world. See, God's fix for Israel is not to raise up another teacher, a pastor. That's not what happens here in our narrative. He doesn't raise up another prophet. No, God heals Israel by raising up a man of worship. That's the solution. Oh, you didn't know we actually haven't actually started the message yet. <laughs> that was all the setup. <sighs> Guys, listen to me. I was going to preach something else entirely. I had another message halfway done. And after worship last night, I was undone and I had to preach this. I had to preach this. We were going to talk about retreat and what retreat means and what, what God does in retreats. 
Did you guys know that in Mark, where we were at yesterday, that, that um, it's such a short gospel. It's the shortest gospel. It's so brief. But you know that, that there's, um, in, I think it's in 16 chapters, there are 16 different times of solitude where Christ goes into solitude. And then of those 16 times in Mark, of those 16 times, 12 of them are interrupted by the work of, of the ministry. Isn't that interesting? We were going to talk about that. Nope. <laughs> nope. No, God, here, listen to me. So many of you guys, listen to me. You've got ambition. You want to be, you want to be a pastor. You want to be a leader. You want to be, you want to be someone of influence in ministry because you have such a heart for Christ. You want to be used and leveraged in such a way. But you know what God's looking for? Men and women of worship. That's what's going to change Kansas City. God's answer to their problem is worship. So the first thing he does before he can bring revival in Israel is he reforms their worship. Look at verse 11 through 24. We're going to to read verses 11 through 16 here, so, so bear with me. And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was in Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash the Abizrite. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. How desperate were they? How desperate were they? And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. This, is a, this guy is a nobody. He's a nobody. And Gideon said unto him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all, the, all his miracles which our fathers told us of? Saying, Did the Lord not bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man, a man of worship. After Gideon works through his doubts here, we see we're going to skip ahead. He has to work through some doubts. He's not so sure about this plan. And after he works through them, we see him full of faith and ready to do one thing. Judges chapter 6, verse 22. And when Gideon perceived that he was, he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face, and the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto thee, fear not, thou shalt not die. Then Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord and called it uh, Jehovah Shalom. Unto this day, it is yet an Ophrah of the Abizrites. Now notice this. Gideon was not commanded to worship. He just did it. Yeah. It was a natural a byproduct of being before his God. He builds an altar to God and he calls it Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is peace. And this act of worship was Gideon's declaration to God that there was no unrest in his life or in the nation of Israel or in this whole world that God was not the answer to. His worship birthed revolution. 
His act of glorifying God in this moment was the beginning of revival in, in, in Israel. So key point four. I'm going to define worship here for you. And I'm going to use worship to define the Great Commission. Worship, worship is the fearless act of glorifying God. It must be fearless. See, see, Gideon had to work through his fear before he could properly worship the Lord. Did you hear what the Lord had for him there? He said, look, fear not. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. He had to work through his fear, and on the other side of that fear was true worship. Worship is the fearless act of glorifying God. Now, that's a really broad definition. Listen to me. Worship happens in praise. Worship happens in your, in your bedroom at home. Worship happens in small group. Worship happens in your car. Worship happens everywhere you go. Worship is the fearless act of glorifying God. And sometimes it looks, looks absurd. Sometimes worship looks like a show. But it's always done to God, and it's always fearless. And the result is this. The mission is the fearless result of worship realized. The Great Commission is the byproduct of worship truly happening in our lives. God's name truly being glorified in our hearts. We have no choice but to live out the Great Commission and go fearless into battle and look the enemy dead in the face and say, You do not stir me. You do not bother me, Satan. World, you do not own me. Idols, I do not worship you. We must put an end to false worship. We must put an end to it. It is now that Gideon can be used. Be used to bring revolution. Be used to bring revival. And be used on a worship mission. A worship mission. God tells him to destroy the altar of Baal. And more importantly, erect a new one to replace it. More importantly, he has to erect a new, a new altar Let's look at verse 25. And it came to pass that same night, that same night that he worshiped, that the Lord said unto him, Take thy father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that, the father, that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it, and build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the, rock, uh, upon the top of this rock in the ordered place, and take the second bullock and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove which thou shalt cut down. There's some work involved here. This is no simple task. Listen to me. You guys are good at work. That's not the problem. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did... Uh, listen, he brought people with him. Look, we can't, I know so much to teach here, guys. He brought people with him to change the way Israel saw worship. He didn't go alone took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had said unto him. And so it was, because he feared his father's house. He wasn't without fear in some areas, but the God, met, God met him where he was at. And the men of the city, that he could not do it by day, and he did it by night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was, was cast down, and, and, and the grove was cut down that was by it. And the second bullock was offered upon the altar that was built. And they said one to another, Who hath done this thing? There was enemies that came up against him. And when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, hath done this thing. Then the men of the city said unto Joash, Bring out thy son, that he may die, because he hath cast down the altar of Baal, and because he hath cut down the, the, the grove that was by it. 
And Joash said, uh, said unto all that stood uh, against him, Will ye plead for Baal? Will ye save him? He that will plead for him, let him be put uh, to death whilst it is yet morning. If he be a god, let him plead for himself, because one has, has cast down his altar. Therefore, on that day, he called him Drubel, he called Gideon Drubel, saying, let Baal plead against him, because he hath thrown down his altar. So much happens here in this passage. Sam preached this not too long ago. You can go back and listen to it. You know, some of the things that we see here is that the very first conversion that takes place is his father. He, he makes a bold act in the midst of his family. What's the bold act that you need to make of worship in the midst of your family to see revival take place in their lives? You know for a fact that some of your family is far from worshiping the Lord. Some of them aren't saved. Are you going to act boldly in worship in, their, in the midst of them, unafraid? It might just bring about revival. Key point number five, our mission, listen to me, our mission, very plainly, is to reform the world's worship. Are you guys hanging with me? Yeah. Our mission is to reform the world's worship. Everybody knows this. Everybody worships something. Everybody serves something. Everyone has idols. And some of them sound like Hinduism and Buddhism. Okay? Some of, some of them sound like Islam, Catholicism. You name your religion, you, named your, you name your sect. Some of it looks like entertainment, some of it looks like materialism. We, can, we could make a list all day. Some of you, some of you know people that, absur- that worship the most absurd thing. Man, people come up with the most clever things to worship. You know, our primary mission is to reform the world's worship. Our responsibility to the mission is to find strongholds of false worship and bring them down to the ground with the intent that we would build a a, a new altar, an altar that's intended to glorify God. That's what discipleship is. Did you know that? That's what discipleship is. It's helping someone go from a place where they worship false idols to tear those things down and rebuild for the name of the Lord. Now listen to me. Let's talk about the power. Gideon praised God to the defeat of his enemy. He praised God to the defeat of his enemy. His worship became a holy rebellion in the nation of Israel. And in just a few verses, we see, we see thousands upon thousands of Israelites come alongside him to go into battle. Now I, I preached this not too long ago, and you know what happens next. And that's a, that's a good message, and if you need to remember it, go back to it. But we're going to talk about specifically how God uses him. See, this strategy, this strategy in the Great Commission is an interesting one. See, they go into battle with the, with the following st- strategy, Psalm 98.6. Psalm 98.6 is their strategy. With trumpets and sound of a cornet, make a joyful noise, noise before the Lord the King. That's it. That's the strategy. It's not very complex. Verse 19 of chapter 7. Go ahead and flip over to chapter 7. Verse 19. He gets a command from the Lord. 
So Gideon and the hundred men, and the hundred men uh, that were with him came unto the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch. And they had but newly set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and break the pitchers that were in their hands. And the three companies blew the trumpets and break the pitchers. And help. see, there's three companies here, each of a hundred. There's 300 men, okay? And the three companies blew the trumpets and break the pitchers and held the lamps in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hand to blow with all, and they cried. The The sword of the Lord and Gideon. And they stood every man in his place round about the camp, and all the host ran and cried and fled. And do you understand what just happened there? They stood in one place and cried God's name. And all the host of their enemy ran and cried and fled. And the 300 blew the trumpets. And the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow, even throughout all the host. And the host fled to Beth Shittah in Zerah, in the border of Abemahola and unto Tabith. Blah. Okay? Now listen. They go into battle with the lamp in one hand. a trumpet in another and they worship the Lord into victory. Do you catch the picture here? Now apparently their swords were sheathed but the instant the God, that God began to wrought victory and I think there's a picture here of, of finding faithful men but we don't have time to But the instant the the enemy was susceptible, the swords were drawn and the enemy came down. Gideon and his men took their worship into battle and God gave them their enemy. 300 men defeated, 15,000, or I'm sorry, no, 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 no. 15,000 men remained. If I remember correctly, I have to go look at the passage. But how many people were defeated that day? You might look ahead of me. 100,000 men. Only 15,000. You, you're, look, we're too stupid to believe this. We're too foolish to actually believe this. You don't believe this, do you? I struggle with it. 300 men killed 100,000 men. And they only did it because they took worship into battle. Turn to Acts 16. We were there last year. Acts 16. And I'll say this as you're turning. The greatest threat to Satan's agenda is Christ worshipers on a mission. The greatest threat to Satan's agenda in this world is Christ worshipers on a mission. Acts chapter 16, verse 16, and it came to pass... As we went to, pr- uh, to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. And the same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And there's a mocking tone to her voice, obviously. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. 
And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains, you know, she, they, were, they were using her to help bring them gain. They were using her soothsaying to help bring them financial wealth. And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace of the rulers and brought them to the magistrate, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrate rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. This is the part where you fear, right? Am I right? The world has rejected them. People despise them. Satan's system has seemed to have overwhelmed them. They are down for the count. Seems obvious, doesn't it? Until you read verse 25. And at midnight, Paul and Silas... prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. Their fears were subsided by the work of glorifying God. They remembered his great name, his great power, his great strength. And their circumstances and their fears no longer owned them. Listen to me. Write this down. For the Christian, listen, liberation isn't freedom from prison. Liberty is our worship. Liberty isn't taking place in the moment that the walls come crumbling down and they step out of the prison walls. That's not where the liberty is. The liberty and the freedom is resting in worship in the will of God. So worship is the solution to their fear, right? But listen, but our worship is not the end goal. Our worship is not the end goal. (laughs) The end goal is seeing the world join us in worship. God's desire is revival. Verse 27, And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been, had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And and they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, and was baptized, and all his house straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before him, and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Oh, God. That our glorifying you and your name, and praising your name, would not end within these walls and at this retreat. 
the, the, the glorifying of your name would be delivered, that we would be ambassadors of worship, that we might be taking worship to the world, that they might, be, that they might see and know of your works, Lord, that they might be saved and be drawn out and notice, listen, beautifully, beautifully, I never considered this. Watch how the, the water both washes wounds and sets free. I love it. So the question to you is this. What fears are standing in the way of your worship? What idols must be torn down before you can call yourself a mission-minded believer? Don't you dare call yourself a mission-minded believer if you are not a man or woman of worship. You don't have fruit? Your mission is failing? I'm calling you today to begin with changing the way that you worship. And I pray that this year that one of our visions and one of the things that we'd be putting before our face is becoming a people of daily worship. Because listen to me, if we don't, if we neglect this, we will be a Judges chapter 6 verse 1 people. It's time, believers. It's time for your maturity. It's time for you to acknowledge that God is greater than your fears. And that is going to spur growth in you. It is going to make the people who desire to lead, it will make them to lead. And it will take those of you who feel young in your faith and you feel inadequate and you've only just begun this work, it will give you freedom to believe that God can do anything in your life and deliver you from any sin or, or difficulty or darkness or frustration. He will do it. I promise it. It's true from his word. It is true. Let's be set free in worship. Even right now, worship team, come up as I pray. Let's be set free. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this time. And Lord, I pray that this year you would make Kaya a people of worship, that when we come together, we would be praying, we would holding, be holding your word with power and authority, that we'd be holding the lamp of the gospel. But yet, Lord, we would be quick to blow the trumpet, to glorify your name, that our time of prayer to you would first and foremost always begin with thanksgiving. We neglect that so quickly. We're so quick to bring our, 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 our requests to you, Lord. Teach us how to glorify your name first and foremost. God, Lord, make our mission be to revive a people, a people who are lost, Lord, that your word would revive them and spur revolution in Kansas City and spur revolution in Tampa and spur revolution throughout this entire world. Use us, O oh God. Begin with our worship. Deliver us from our fears. Deliver us from our false idols. Allow us to lay it all down right now. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.